You know, I've uh, mentioned uh, the movie, the fictional movie, The Godfather. Uh, one of the reasons why I talked about it when we went through the kings is that we had some kings that kind of had this mob mentality. They were very evil in what they did. And tonight, I'm mentioning The Godfather because we're also going to talk about some very evil guys uh, in this story. But in the movie, The Godfather, there's a character, Michael Corleone, son of Vito, who is kind of taking control of one of the heads of the five uh, mob families in New York. And towards the end of uh, the first movie, you have this very solemn scene where Michael has decided in his heart that uh, in order to as he would say, take care of the family business, he's going to wipe out or get rid of the other heads of the other families. Uh, those that are causing him grief, those that are trying to take his power, and he says, I'm going to take care of the family business. And in, towards the end of the movie, you have this very strange scene unfolding where you have Michael attending the baptism, uh, his infant baptism of his son. They're at the cathedral, family surrounding them, going through the motions of this baptism and asking, asking him, you know, do you accept the Lord, all this other stuff I do. And you see this face as you're going through this. This is his face the whole time. Because back and forth, you go from this, attending his son's baptism, and you keep going back to uh, a murder scene. And back to this, and taking out someone else. And back to this, and taking out someone else. All under his control. All while he knows this is going on, he's attending his son's baptism. And you're just like, wow, that is cold. That is just so cold-blooded. And then, of course, <clears throat> after the baptism's over, he's coming down the steps, and one of his guys shows up, whispers in his ear, it's all done, it's all taken care of, and he just kind of nods his head. Same, just blank stare. Nods his head, and he goes on. Tonight, we are looking at a story right here in John chapter 11 that might be the darkest in not only the book of John, but I think it's a story that might be the darkest in the entire Bible. Um, and so, up to this point, up to this po uh, point in John chapter 11, uh, we see that John has highlighted a series of miracles. And he says in chapter 2, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. This is what John was telling them. That people were believing in Jesus because of the signs that he was doing. And so throughout these first 11 chapters, he highlights all of these miracles that Jesus... We talked about last week in John uh, 3.16. The light has come... Uh, in verse 19, he says, The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And so the story that we're looking at tonight is going to be pure evil. Uh, in their hearts, what they're planning to do, all straight evil. And the very men who knew scriptures better than anyone else, the very men who were responsible for teaching those scriptures to everyone else, they're going to be the ones that 
in this moment are plotting against Jesus. And so the very same men saw the same signs. The very same men, uh, most of them were probably right there at the tomb when Jesus is going to call Lazarus out. And so uh, here's your big idea for the passage tonight. God worked through evil men to accomplish his plan of redemption to gather his children to himself. So uh, let's read in John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day forward, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. But went from there to the region near the wilderness, to the town of Ephraim. Where he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders. That if anyone knew where he was. He should let them know. So that they might arrest him. That's the word of God. Let's pray this evening. God, we just ask that tonight you would help us to look at the scriptures. Help us to see the truth of your word. I pray that um, we take courage when we enter times like this in our own life. Where it seems like the world may be against us. But God, you were still in control Even in the worst and darkest of days, your plan was unfolding exactly the way that you had planned it from the beginning of time. God, we thank you for your son and how you sent him to be a sacrifice for us. It's what we celebrate this week, this Passion Week. And Father, I just pray that you would uh, help this story to be an encouragement to us as we look to your son. In his name we pray these things. Amen. Many of the Jews, therefore, to give you a little backstory of why these guys are in such an uproar, to why they're plotting such evil against Jesus, um, 
First of all, in the book of John, like I said earlier, in the first 11 chapters, you have this whirlwind of years of ministry unfolding, the story of Jesus, all the things. And it's kind of highlighted by these seven miracles that Jesus will perform, chapters 1 through 11. Here's a list of those. Uh, Water into wine, chapter 2. He heals the official sons, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, healing the blind man, and the last is highlighted in the scriptures that were right before the verses that we read tonight in raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, if you go through the book of Luke, Luke is very chronological. He puts everything in nice, neat order. John doesn't do that. He wants to make a point of what he's, uh, the way he is writing Uh, his gospel uh, for a reason. And so the first 11 chapters are many years of ministry. Uh, Chapter 12 is just a matter of days. Chapters 13 through 18. uh, Some of those chapters are just mere hours. Some of those chapters are over a few days. But it's 13 to 18 is just a matter of some days, a week, maybe a month. But it's really not very long at all. So John wants those reading his gospel to know who Jesus really is. What, who he was for, as, as the Messiah, who he was as God. And he always highlights that by saying that Jesus created division amongst the people. He, crea- he created lots of division. So back to Lazarus. Uh, early in the chapter, in chapter 11, we see uh, Mary and Martha. They send word to Jesus. Lazarus is sick. We uh, need something to happen about that, Jesus. We need you to come and to heal our our brother. And so they say he's sick. Jesus reminds us in 11.4 that this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So Jesus remains exactly where he's at. Obviously, he knows what he's doing. And he allows, uh, he waits for Lazarus to die. Then he waits for Lazarus to be buried. And then they head that way. And so Lazarus is in the tomb for four days. Uh, by this time, he would have been nice and ripe. Long enough for everyone who thought he was dead to know that he was dead. And so Jesus is going to perform this miracle. He's going to stand before the tomb. Everyone watching. Uh, and he is going to say, Lazarus, come out. Now, we've seen the miracles that have taken place, the other big six uh, that uh, John highlights in his gospel, you know, and it's pretty remarkable. Walking on water, that would be big. Uh, turning water into wine, okay. Feeding 5,000 with a, with a Lunchable, great. I mean, he's doing some pretty amazing things. But raising a man from the dead, as far as creating division, this is icing on the cake. And these guys are mad. And in this last miracle that John is throwing our way, we're going to get several different responses from the people and how they respond to this miracle that has taken place. It says that some believed and followed, and some will respond in unbelief and anger. And so let's look at a few of these responses. Uh, Look at verse 45 again. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, Believed in him. So first response, seeing and believing. Or they had faith in Jesus. This has been the point. Jesus trying to reveal who he is 
the true uh, Son of God, the Messiah that has come to save his people. And as John is laying this out in the first 11 chapters, uh, this, he wants people to see Jesus for who he really is. And right here in this verse, this, we should take courage in this, that people saw the truth of who Jesus was and they believed. They had faith in Jesus. So, but let's look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So response number two, going and telling. As I studied this text, I got a lot of different mixed reviews from commentators on this point. On verse 46. Some of them did not agree with one another on what this verse really meant. On verse 46. So uh, I will say that the majority of the commentators, and this is kind of where I land, uh, agree that it was not in their belief that they went to the Pharisees and the Sadducees to uh, tell them what had taken place. They weren't going to tell them, hey, we've we found the Messiah. We have faith in him. Uh, some people believe that that might be the case. And it might be the case. But I believe that uh, they were going to tattle on Jesus. And as we've all heard, snitches get stitches. Uh, and that you should not be a snitch. But as I read this text, I feel like that's exactly what they're doing. We don't like what we've seen. We don't agree with what we've seen. Now, on the other hand, we've seen something miraculous. So we've got to get a second opinion about this. Let's go talk to the high priest. Let's go talk to the, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Let's talk to them. They ran to what was comfortable. They ran to what was known. And so they didn't take this news about who Jesus was uh, positively, in my opinion. So let's run and get the opinion of those that we've been looking up to for years. Those who've been teaching us the scriptures for years. The thing that keeps catching me off guard about this text is that all of these people have seen Jesus with the exact same experiences. They've seen all the miracles. They've heard all the same stories. They saw the same Lazarus step out of the tomb. And yet they... We see these two heading in totally opposite directions. One believing and one questioning and, and running and telling, going and telling uh, their leaders. Response number three, worrying and fear or worry and fear. Verse 47. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So as they gather this council together, this would have been the Sanhedrin. This was made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And sadly enough, these two groups of people did not agree on many things. Matter of fact, they didn't like each other that much. Yet, it's amazing that they came together... Because they both agreed that they didn't agree with Jesus and they didn't believe who Jesus was. So they come together. This would have been the governing religious authorities of the day. They were very wealthy. They were the who's who of the religious people of the day. They were members of the Jerusalem Country Club. Uh, they had great influence. However, they were still under Roman rule. 
And so they had a problem. These guys had a big problem. And their order of business in gathering together is that this guy, Jesus, has done one of the most amazing things that we've ever seen. Something that only God can do. Give something that's dead life. Only God can do that. And so we have a big problem on our hands. This guy, Jesus, is doing things that only God can do. This is shocking. And this was enough for them to create great anxiety and great worry. So what are they worried about? Okay, this story is filled with a lot of irony. Let's talk about a small part of irony right at the beginning. Um, As these guys were meeting together, notice with me that they are not denying at all what Jesus has done. None of them are trying to say, Jesus did not raise Lazarus from the dead. These men knew Lazarus was dead. And now they see Lazarus breathing. They're not denying that fact. They're not doubting that fact. Um, They've seen these miracles for themselves. Many of them were probably right there at the tomb. So they're not zero doubting, zero denying the truth of what Jesus had done. So what are they really worried about? Here's the problem. Under Roman rule, it was understood that the Israelites would be left alone if, one, you paid your taxes, and two, you kept the peace. Jesus was stirring the pot. He was not very much of a peacekeeper. And they were worried that Jesus was going to cause trouble for them. Uh, We see this in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. He's going to mess things up for us. We've got it good, and we want to keep it good. Uh, I want you to just try to let that sink in for a second. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Let it sink in that these men are the most studied Religious leaders of the day. They know the scriptures. Many of them probably have the first five books of the Bible memorized. They should have anticipated the Messiah. They should have been looking for the Messiah. They were a week away from celebrating the Passover. Exactly what was pointing them forward to a future Messiah that would come and redeem their people. They had been following Jesus for a while. They've seen the miracles. They've seen a dead man rise from the dead. But they don't see Jesus as the Messiah. They see him as a troublemaker. They see a man who is going to mess up their way of life. The power that they have. The fame that they have. Their status in society. And they make the decision that he must go. So the solution. Their solution. One man must die. Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. I love this, that one of their own peeps are telling them this. Because they keep getting mad when Jesus tells them this. But here's one of their, the high priest tells them, and they're, whatever. Nor do you understand that it is better that for you that one man should die for the people... Not that the whole nation should perish. Perish. 
So Caiaphas comes to the council. He offers this great solution. Much to the tune of the Godfather, like we talked about earlier. Okay? This guy's our troublemaker. Instead of trying to talk to him about it or reason with him about it, let's just get rid of him. Let's get rid of the problem. Let's take care of the problem. If we take him out, it's better that he die rather than Rome come and take away our nation. In a little, another bit of irony, uh, if you continue in John, reading in through John, I know we're reading through John, so you're going to get there if you haven't already, uh, you will find that these guys are going to say that, okay, not only does Jesus have to go, but Lazarus, he has to go too. He, they raised him from the dead, and he's got to be gone. We've got to get rid of him. We've got to extinguish this story. So not only do we need to take care of Jesus, we need to get rid of Lazarus too. And then they, they're just going to keep adding to the list. All right, some of these disciples, they've got to go. A little bit of irony there. Do these guys really care about the nation? Maybe. Maybe they really don't want the Romans to come and to take away the power that they have. But that's exactly the problem. They're only worried about themselves. They're only worried about losing their fame and their power and their ability to uh, do things the way that they want to do them. So in the very times that they should have been preparing for the Passover, preparing the people for the Passover, they said some were going there to purify themselves, to prepare for the Passover. Yet, they're plotting murder. John Calvin said this, It is wicked to consult about guarding against dangers which we cannot avoid. Unless we choose to depart from the right path. Our first inquiry ought to be, what does God command or choose to be done? By this we ought to abide, whatever may be the consequence to ourselves. Choose to do what, what is right, no matter the consequence. That's in, in essence what he's saying. Is that what they are doing? Absolutely not. They're saying we want the easiest route to get rid of the problem. Or as, we, as Charles Spurgeon adds, they were acting just like the kings. I don't think I put this on the screen, but he says this. They didn't consider if what they were doing was right. They were concerned with what if, excuse me. They were only concerned with if it was the easiest thing to do to get the desired outcome. Whatever it takes to get our way, what's the easiest thing to do? Get rid of Jesus. You know who's missing from this meeting? One person. Jesus. Uh, he's missing. I read a commentary this week that highlights the fact that this right here at the end of John chapter 11 is the real trial for Jesus' life or death. The real trial is right here. I know in a, in a little bit, in a few chapters, we're going to have him meeting with Herod and Pilate in a trial. But this is the real trial. This is where the decision was made that Jesus must die. And you know, uh, one of the cool things I, I read this week. You know why the Sanhedrin did not want to meet with Jesus? Because they knew... Deep down inside, 
that just like Pilate says in chapter 18, when he meets with Jesus, I find no guilt in him. And these guys knew we can't find anything on Jesus. We just need to kill him. We're not going to meet with him. We're not going to talk with him because we know he's right and we're wrong. He must die. And here's the irony of the whole story. There's this accidental prophecy. Let's continue reading in 51. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also together into one of the, uh, into one of the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You know, I have accidental in italics because the prophecy is a double entendre. There you go. That's your special word for the night. Double entendre. It's one of those words that means it has a double meaning. Um, So as John explains, Caiaphas did did not say this on his own accord. says, as the high priest, the high priest gets a word from God. And as the high priest, he is to take that word from God and and give it to the nation. But in regards to Jesus, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but to also gather into, into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So God has chosen this high priest for a reason. To speak truth. Even though this high priest selfishly wants Jesus To die for selfish reasons. God's plan is unfolding right before us. It kind of reminds me of an Old Testament prophet by the name of Balaam. And he was a prophet that uh, wanted to curse God's people. And that God wouldn't allow him. And when he spoke, he spoke blessings upon God's God's people. And just kind of one of those double things where God used someone who wanted to do evil, and he used it for good. And the ultimate irony in this story is that the very plan that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin were plotting to have Jesus killed, murdered, was God's plan to bring salvation to his people. But my favorite irony of the night, uh, something that I learned this week in studying deeper, I didn't realize before I studied this is that it is thought that John wrote the gospel of John around 90 AD. Now, this is about 20 years after a very important event has taken place in the nation for God's people. Around 66 AD, there's this uprising. And this uprising, some of the zealots get together and they go to battle with the Romans, and they kick their tail. They kick them out of town, and they take control, and they set up their own government. And so you're thinking, wow, we kind of govern ourselves now. We don't have to answer to the Romans. Now, when the Romans get word of this, uh, they pack up some troops, and they march down on Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, it says that uh, Jerusalem is flattened. The people are killed. I mean, you can go and read about it, and uh, it's bad, bad stuff. So, the very thing that these guys were concerned about, the Romans coming in and taking control 
regarding Jesus is exactly what's going to unfold in 70 AD. As T.A. Carson says, Jesus did die, but the nation perished anyway. John knew when he wrote the Gospel of John about these events. And he places them right here in this order on purpose. He wants you to see the irony that they were trying to save the nation. But in essence, they were about to lose the nation all the whole time. And his readers would have known about what happened in Jerusalem because of this. It all points to Jesus. He placed it in here for a reason. And these guys had it wrong the entire way. The Sanhedrin. As they plotted against Jesus, it was wrong. And yet, it was all right. Double entendre. John Calvin says it like this. Caiaphas's tongue was guided by a higher impulse. Because God intended that he should make known by his mouth something higher than we had, he had conceived in his mind. God was going to use him. Yes, he gave him exactly the plan. But in Caiaphas's heart, it was evil, and God meant it for good. John continues, Jesus would die for the nation, not only for the nation, but together his children who were scattered abroad. This was God's plan the entire way. And as the people were gathering to celebrate the Passover, it was the, at the Passover that they were celebrating and remembering all the way back from Exodus. In Exodus, God, through Moses, told his people about his plan to save them. So they were to take the Passover lamb, and they were to sacrifice the lamb, and they were to take some, the blood, and they were to wipe it over the door. And this was the, the plague of the firstborn son. And as midnight came and the Lord came through the camp, if the blood was not over the door, then it said the destroyer would visit that house and it would kill the firstborn child in that house. But if the blood was there, he passed over the house. And that's why they, this is something that they were celebrating. There needed to be a blood sacrifice to cover into that home. And they would celebrate the, uh, the sacrifice of atonement for the nation. The nation's sin needed to be covered. That needed a blood sacrifice before a holy God. And so these sacrifices ultimately, through the Passover, through the atonement, were all pointing us forward to what would happen on the cross with Jesus. Which is why... John the Baptist declares uh, earlier in the, in the book that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he says when Jesus comes to him. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover Lamb that we celebrate every year at this time. He's the Passover Lamb. And I think it's so fitting that we talked about this this week in preparation before Easter. Uh, this is the Passion Week as we head towards Good Friday and Jesus dying on the cross. It's not Good Friday because you get a day off of work. It's a Good Friday because Jesus paid the penalty that we deserved. And what a beautiful time to talk about this scripture uh, heading into Holy Week. Isaiah 53. Isaiah reminds us. This is hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. He was despised and rejected by men. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one who men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement and that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And down in verse 10. It was the will of God to crush him. Hundreds of years before Jesus is ever born. This is the plan. And it's all coming to fruition right here in John chapter 11. As these guys plot the murder of Christ. And as we gather. As we celebrate what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. The fact that Jesus came and accomplished the will of the Father. He lived the perfect life that we could not. He is going to die the death that we deserve. To pay the penalty that we could never pay. Rise from death. Conquering death and sin. He is risen. We celebrate that every single Sunday. But it has a little extra special meaning on Easter when we celebrate that. Verse 54. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So these religious leaders, with everything that they had, wanted to stop what Jesus was doing. And if you're here tonight, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I just want you to see that this is the exact same thing that is taking place all over the world today. Throughout all of history, Christians are the most persecuted people upon the face of the earth. Why? Because the same message that Jesus came to proclaim 2,000 years ago is the same good news and the same gospel that is still alive and well today. And it's met with the exact same hostility today as it was 2,000 years ago. People want to silence the message and the gospel And John had given us this plan of the enemy in the previous chapter. And here's the passage we see the enemy's plan. Number one, the Jews wanted to stop Jesus from what he was doing. We don't want any more miracles. We don't want any more signs. They had seen enough. They had tolerated him long enough. They had put up with him long enough. And they were sick of it. Um, You know... This still happens today. People try to shut down the truth about who God is and about people going to spread the gospel around the world. They want it stopped. And they will do everything in their power to stop it. It's amazing that the Bible is still the number one bestseller every single year. Because God's plan is still unfolding. Uh, Number two, the Jews wanted to stop people from believing in Jesus. I really do love the verse where it says, If he keeps this up, everyone will believe in him. You know, I pray that we're that kind of church. I pray that we're the kind of church that in what we're teaching and how we worship, uh, people look at our church and go, Man, if they keep this up, then all of Odessa is going to be saved and all of Texas is going to be saved and the United States is going to be saved. Before you know it, the whole world will believe in Jesus. 
the, the sad part is Jesus created division then and he still creates division today. Luke 12 says this, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. God, Jesus creates division. And those who believe in Jesus are at odds with the rest of the world. They didn't want anyone to believe in Jesus. And it created a great division. Number three, the Jews didn't want to give up their comforts and desires. Didn't want to give up their own comforts and desires. <laughs> the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't like being told that they were wrong. Uh, no one in the world today likes to be told they're wrong either. Um, they liked their position in society. They didn't like this guy coming in and telling them uh, that what they believed was wrong and that they were messing, this Jesus guy was messing things up for them. Um, you know, this point kind of scares me for our nation uh, because I think our world also is very comfortable in their beliefs and comfortable in their sin. And I do believe that, that this probably um, includes many people who walk through the doors of church every Sunday morning. That they're very comfortable with this. They go through the motions. But what do they really believe? If, it, <clears throat> if things really hit, uh, if the going got tough, would their belief in Jesus falter? Or would it become stronger? And so um, when these men asked Jesus uh, about what is true. And Jesus gives them answers. It only creates division. And they don't like what Jesus is doing for their own comforts and their own desires. <clears throat> Jesus also reminds us in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, therefore the world hates you. So that's the enemy's plan. To stop what Jesus is doing. Stop people from believing in Jesus. Um, let's look at God's plan. God's plan in this situation. Jesus had to die to accomplish the will of the Father. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This was God's plan from the very beginning of time. To draw sinners to himself through the blood of his son. Through Jesus Christ. Which is why Jesus will cry out on the cross. It is accomplished. It is finished. He was accomplishing the will of the father. Number two. Jesus had to die together. Uh, God's children together. God may await to draw all nations to himself. For the sins of the whole world, uh, like just what we read, he did that through his son. 
We read it in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This was God's plan to bring not just the Jews but also the Gentiles to him. Romans 1.16. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew but also to the Greek. So my question to you tonight is how will you respond to Jesus? If you are a follower of Jesus here tonight, uh, I would say that we do exactly what we do every week. We gather together. We worship God together. We praise God together. We study God's word together. We give thanks for uh, loving us enough to take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that we would say yes to him uh, to make known to us the truth about who Jesus is, to remove our, the scales from our eyes so we could see Jesus for who he truly is. As we go through this life, we are to make Jesus known. That's what we're supposed to do. Give him glory to make him known to the world. And until we are brought out of this world and into our heavenly home, as we sang about earlier, we are to make him known to the nations. And we remember this passage and we go throughout our lives doing this exact same thing. Now, I'll also stop right here and suggest to, uh, for us to examine our hearts. I would be willing to bet that many of us in this room um, might be one of those who go and tattle on Jesus to the Pharisees. Um, when things got tough, you know, if they start setting up people and arresting us as we come to church, if, uh, if the t- going really got tough... Would we remain faithful to the Lord? Uh, I think some of us might jet. My question to you is, examine your heart on that. Uh, Look at yourself deep down inside and think, do I really believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Is he really the Messiah? Do I live a life that really says, yes, I follow Jesus? Has it changed you from the inside out? If you fall into that camp of the unknown, please speak to a friend or a pastor this week. I just, I just encourage you to do that. Because not knowing or maybe, that's not a good answer when it comes to your eternal salvation. Uh, lastly, if you're here tonight or if you're listening online and you say, Nope, I don't know Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. I won't believe in Jesus. Uh, I just... Ask that you would look at the evidence. I ask that you would examine the evidence. I love the story of Lee Strobel. He was an atheist. He set out to prove that Jesus was not who he said he was. He hated Christians and he was an atheist. So he said, all right, I'm going to go look at all the proof. I'm going to do all the study. I'm going to look at all the science. I'm going to look at all the history. And I'm going to prove that what they say about Jesus is false. He says this, it was the evidence from science and history that prompted me to abandon my atheism and become a Christian. In his study to prove Jesus was not who he said he was, he became a Christian. He saw the evidence, he examined the evidence, and he said, this guy's legit. He realized that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. It's about all of his evidence about that. Uh, Time is permitting, so I'm going to say this. Luke chapter 16. There's another story in the Bible. I love it. There's another story. It's about a rich man and a guy named 
Lazarus. It's not this Lazarus that we're talking about tonight. But it's kind of ironic that of all these parables that Jesus speaks, he only has one parable where he mentions a man by name. Maybe he's trying to connect these two stories. We'll see. But in this story, rich man, Lazarus, beggar at the gate, uh, they both die. The rich man goes to Hades. Lazarus goes to Abraham's side. Father Abraham, Lazarus looks at, uh, the rich man looks up, sees Lazarus, the beggar at his gate, and says, Hey, Abraham, have Lazarus dip his finger in some water and put it on my tongue, for I'm in anguish. Please. And Abraham lets him know the bad news, that there's a chasm fixed, and there's a great chasm fixed, and he cannot come to you, and you can't come to him. In that story also, the rich man, in his arrogance, as Landon just talked about this not very long ago, in his arrogance says, send Lazarus to warn my brothers, because I don't want them to come here with me. They have Moses and the prophets. No, Abraham. They won't listen to Moses and the prophets. But if someone rises from the dead, they will listen to him. To which he says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The biggest, one of the biggest ironies in this story is that these scholared men saw a man raised from the dead. And yet they did not believe. Some of these very men are going to be there when Jesus rises from the dead. And they will still not believe. So my, I'm going to end with this. How will you respond to Jesus? The difference between belief and unbelief in this story is evident. It's not the information. They all had the same information. They'd all seen the same miracles. Both of these groups have seen Jesus for who he is. One group responds in faith. One group responds in fear. And so you have seen Jesus for who he is tonight. And I hope that you will respond in faith and not in fear. You must decide. So let's pray tonight as we end.